0: from washington dc this is on the ground today unheard voices from 2020 on issues that will continue to resonate in this new year first health care that in the united states is not a human right
1: Is it so bad to say that somebody on Medicaid should get a medication when they need it? I'm just a dad. I've got nothing in my life. We have a broken car that we're always trying to get fixed so that we can get to work, risking our life for minimum wage. And all we want to do is live.
0: Second, the continuing neoliberal legacy of former President Barack Obama and why Obama needs to continue to disparage his former pastor, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. We hear the complete address by the anti-apartheid activist and theologian, the Reverend Alan Bosak.
2: The resilience to suffer for what is right, the fearlessness to judge between right and wrong, the faithfulness to hold up the difference so that the people can see and judge and make choices. That is the power that terrifies empire.
0: All that and much more, coming up. Welcome to On The Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital for this first day of 2021. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, as the old year turns into the new, there are consequential decisions being made or not being made here in Washington. First on Wednesday, Republican Senate Leader Mitch McConnell successfully blocked an up or down vote on $2,000 in direct aid to Americans, while Senator Bernie Sanders was prepared to filibuster the NDAA defense authorization bill, unless the aid vote went forward, he was ultimately crossed by fellow senators, even 41 Democrats, including Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, who voted to override his motion not to proceed. Opposing Sanders, Republicans used the false argument that the payments would benefit a small minority of people who did not need them, while Sanders retorted, reminding McConnell about the true face of poverty in the United States. Kentucky is the state where 10 out of the 25 poorest counties in America exist. And I'm sure Senator McConnell is aware that throughout his state, you got thousands and tens of thousands of people living in economic desperation. And I'm talking about counties where 30 to 40 percent of people are living in poverty and where many thousands of residents are trying to survive on less than $20,000 a year. I'm talking about a state, the state of Kentucky, and I'm just using Kentucky as an example because that's the state Senator McConnell represents, true all over this country. But in Kentucky, over 22% of the children
1: are living in poverty.
0: As things stand right now, Americans will receive a $600 direct payment from that $960 billion relief package signed into law on December 27th. But even some Republican analysts say that McConnell, with his maneuver, may have just buried the chances of Georgia Republican Senate candidates running in that January 5th special election. debate in Washington is whether progressive lawmakers in the House will use or not use the rare leverage they have right now to force an up-or-down vote in the House on Medicare for All. The Force the Vote movement at ForceTheVote.org, spearheaded by the Jimmy Dore Show and a movement for a People's Party, is pressuring progressives in the House of Representatives to threaten to withhold their votes to Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the House if she does not bring an up-or-down vote to the floor for Medicare for All. Progressives like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are pushing back against the movement, but their arguments that this is not the right time or that they are lobbying for important committee assignments or that the vote will fail anyway are being swatted by the movement that says, if not now, in the middle of a pandemic, then when? A virtual town hall, viewed by more than 100,000 people on Wednesday, began with testimony by two people devastated by the healthcare crisis in the United States. First is Joy Marie Mann, host of the podcast Savage Joy, followed by Scott Desnoyers, a father living in New York State.
3: I was speaking to you today not just as someone in independent media but as someone who also became unexpectedly disabled. One night I went to sleep like normal and I woke up with most of my eyesight gone. I thought perhaps I was still sleeping. I was completely disoriented and told my husband to hand me my glasses. I put them on and realized absolutely no change. Mm. It was like I just suddenly put on a blindfold. I was completely, you know, confused and overwhelmed. I struggled to get dressed and my husband took me to the hospital. It was there I was diagnosed with a rare disorder named myopic degeneration. Since 2019, my entire life has changed. There was no progression of losing my sight. It was literally overnight. To say it's been traumatic is an understatement of epic proportions. I lost my job, which was unfortunately legal because I was a contractor. And I went from typing 52 words per minute to 21 with mistakes, um, which was one of the reasons they let me go. I have worked in healthcare for over 10 years, ironically. I stopped being able to do many of the things I love. I was an English major and now find myself unable to read books. For instance, things such as, as simple as trying to put a pen cap on a pen will send me into ugly crying because of frustration it takes many times to do things that we've all done so many times so thoughtlessly i'm constantly walking into things and fall down a lot my life has been uprooted completely in january despite everything i decided to move from pennsylvania to iowa to for 5 weeks to campaign for bernie sanders It was a struggle in so many ways. I'm not allowed to drive. I only knew one person. I'd never been to Iowa. And yet somehow I was convinced I could go, still go door-to-door in four degrees with ice and snow. I think a lot of it was denial. But those five weeks taught me that I can still do some of the things I want to. I bring this up because one of the highlights of those five weeks was meeting Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. I tried to tell her how much her fight for Medicare for All meant to me, but my words couldn't escape as I cried. Rashida grabbed my hands and she cried with me. I told her I was terrified of what I was going through and how much more my sight was worsening. She embraced me, and we held hands for minutes. It meant so much to have some hope restored by someone I respect so much. So I guess my question to Rashida is, are you the same person who cried with me? And held my hands as we discussed the need for Medicare for all. Since Iowa, I've had eye injections, which cost over $12,000 each. I get them each eyes every 30 days. And I've had two eye surgeries, which even with insurance leaves me thousands in medical debt not to mention a $5,000 deductible, which starts again in a day. In addition to myopic degeneration, I have a detached retina, which had surgery for and it didn't take, so I had to have it again. And cataracts. Ideal eyesight is 20-20, mine is 20-2400. I was visually impaired, then legally blind, And now I'm visually disabled, all within less than a year. I do not share this to scare you. What happened to me is very rare, but I do share it with you because it's important to realize that while you may not need Medicare for all today, you very well may need it tomorrow. On top of having your life turned upside down when becoming disabled why the hell should everything be exacerbated by things like pre-authorizations and medical bills and countless insurance phone calls something i've never personally shared publicly is the despair and deep depression which comes from becoming disabled. The feeling of being broken and feeling like you're a burden because suddenly you need to ask for help for the littlest things. And sometimes when you go to bed, hoping you just don't wake up the next morning, My question to Ro Khanna is, are you the same person I interviewed on my show four times who continuously supported Medicare for All? Are you the same Ro who shared my post about my medical needs and my medical bills and said it's unacceptable? My question to AOC is, are you the same person who I interviewed on my show who told me that you're an activist? and would always fight for Medicare for all? We may not be your constituents, but make no mistake, we got you elected. You campaigned as an activist. You showed pictures of shoes with holes in them, saying how much you campaign. You said you were of the people. Where are those activists now? I can't comprehend how their trepidation of pissing off people who already loathe you, people like Pelosi, who you refer to as Mama Bear, who have done nothing but insult you, belittle you, and block you. Why are you worrying about what she, of all people, thinks? She already knows how she feels, and she will not be swayed. You don't even have to do this alone. It would be with other reps and with thousands and thousands of supporters backing you. Your fear is not doing yourself any favors. There is no doubt the establishment knows about force the vote, and they're waiting to give cheers with their mimosas. If you disregard those of us you have always said you are one with. Some people love to say it won't pass anyway, but they're missing the point. Whether it passes or not, this weekend is important because if we stand up and fight for it, that is also a victory. If it was a bad strategy, Pelosi would have already done it. As someone who has become disabled, it is frustrating to see people who say they have no medical bills and no medical needs say forcing the vote now is not the time. What makes you think you can speak for those of us who have those pains right now? We have a president-elect who couldn't care less. We have a president-elect who said he would veto Medicare for All if it came across his desk. We have the man who made Medicare for All a household term and wrote the damn bill who's been shafted yet again. And so give us something give us some bit of hope we have nothing but each other right now and i would love to say the people in power aren't as stronger as the power of the people but is that the case if you guys can't even stand up and be the activist that you say you are you need to choose your loyalty is it the people who constantly disrespect you or is it the people who got you elected We fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. We fight for those who are hurting. We fight for the hopeless. We fight for a healthier tomorrow. Never, ever lose your sense of outrage. And you're damn right. Force the vote.
1: Thank you all so much. I mean, you've all been such warriors for Medicare for All, and you've helped elevate my voice, and I can't tell you all thank you enough. Back in February of 2019, my oldest son, Danny, moved in with me. He was having some domestic problems that rolled into a couple of legal issues. After about three weeks of staying with me, he comes home to me. He's like, Pops, I want to get my medicine refilled today, and I found out my insurance had been canceled. I'm like, okay, Danny, not a big deal. How much is it? He tells me it's $250. It was a big deal. We don't have that kind of money kicking around our house. Well, the medication he was on was Risperidone, and it has a known suicidal risk from withdrawals. I tell Danny, we're going to try to come up with the money. You have an appointment next Tuesday with your therapist. I'm sure she can help you out. In the meantime, you should call Fidelis and find out what happened. Fidelis Care is owned by Centene, which made $60.1 billion in 2018 after adding Managed Medicaid, a program for the poorest and sickest among us, which was the program Danny was on. He didn't call first thing. He waited till like April 1st or April 2nd. When he called, he found out that he had missed a $20 payment again to a corporation that made $60.1 billion off of the sickest among us. Centene was also sued in Iowa and I believe they had to pay out something. I think it was like $3.4 billion for the same exact thing of denying care to manage Medicaid patients. Now, April 9th comes around and I'm sitting in my kitchen is about 1120 11, 11, somewhere between 1120 and 1130 in the morning and 32 seconds after Danny posted it I see this his farewell note on Facebook I'm going to share it on my Twitter with everyone now his note says to me I just want everyone to know that I love them I'm saying goodbye this world wasn't meant for me maybe the next life will be better. I super glued my seatbelt, double checked. I don't have the strength to open it. And I choose death by drowning because I can't get above this pain. I'm sorry for hurting those who care. This is selfish, I'm sure. But I've been staring at the water for hours now. And I've made my decision. Daniel and Hazel, I'm so sorry. He drove his truck into the Mohawk River at that point. I didn't know it was the Mohawk. His post had a picture of the cab of his truck overlooking the water. I lived five minutes from Saratoga Lake. And I thought that's where he was. I jumped in my truck, in my car, and I raced down to the lake. I was driving about 65 miles per hour to get around it. I was looking for muddy water or something. I couldn't save Danny. But I promised him at his funeral, and his brothers and sisters, I'm gonna make our lawmakers look me in the eye and see the consequences of their decision. Two weeks after this, Ro Khanna, Representative Ro Khanna, shared Danny's story on the House floor. A few weeks later, to my surprise, our VP elect Kamala Harris then shared Danny's story also saying that we need to pass Medicare for all. Kamala, I hope you see this. I promise to look our lawmakers, look me in the eye and see the consequences of their decisions. Three weeks after you did that, you introduced a plan that would have rewarded Danny's murderers. You'd re- introduce a plan for insurance companies such as Centene to sell Medicare to all with a 10-year fade out of, of private insurance companies. Now, you call them private insurance companies. And who coined that term for them? They did. They're not private, they're privatized. Let's stop spinning all these little dark truths that, that, that they're just wrong. They're corporate controlled medical insurance. If you wanna say that Medicare for all is government controlled healthcare, then what we have is corporate controlled healthcare, and they'll deny your child a life-saving medication for a lousy $20. Even ancient Rome put the price of a human life at 30 silver pieces. That's $185. That's that's insane. We're not, not even $185. We're talking $20. And we're going to deny a, a person a medication with a known suicidal risk. Fidelis, by the way, is also owned by a Catholic priest. It's just gut-wrenching to think that a Catholic priest will deny a patient a medication with a suicidal risk, knowing their view on suicide. I'm glad I don't believe in their teachings at that point. What our politicians need to understand is it's not just numbers, they're not games, we are people. I'm just a dad, I've got nothing in my life. We have a broken car that we're always trying to get fixed so that we can get to work, risking our life for minimum wage. And all we wanna do is live. I mean, is it so bad to say that somebody on Medicaid should get a medication when they need it? Is this what we're worried about? Meanwhile, we can have somebody like Mr. Nierdorf, who owns Centene, make a $26.7 million salary. And that's not including everything that they're hiding. And if you think this is a joke between these politicians, you have to understand, I considered running against Elise Stefanik. Her Uh, Democratic primary that I would have been going against was Tedra Cobb. Tedra Cobb and I had discussed Danny's story a couple of weeks after we lost him. She cried on the phone with me for two hours. At her campaign release, I wanted to to discuss with her Medicare for All, and I, I was there. She asked me for a hug in front of the cameras. And then instead of supporting Medicare for All, she turned her back to me, and she asked the crowd, all wearing Tedra stickers, who here likes their private insurance? How many people do you think in that crowd of 50 people had Fidelis care being the biggest provider in New York for managed Medicaid? She asked those people who liked my son's murderers with her back turned towards me. Much like Kamala Harris shared Danny's story as a commercial for his murderers. We're not just numbers. These aren't just stories. We're real people And it doesn't end. I could tell you, we've all heard, many of us here have heard about Shalin, Amy Valala's daughter. You know, it was a couple of thousand dollars worth of tests. I could tell you about Alan who died over a couple of $250 worth of prescription for his uh, insulin. There's many, many stories for that one. Joshua and David, I've heard so many myself. We're all dying for just pennies on the dollar of what these people are making off of our lives. We accept that this is okay. When our VP hears Danny's story and then three weeks later goes on to the debate stage and says, no, I still feel there's room for private health insurance. When she knows private health insurance killed my son over 20 bucks. How is this rational? Every other country provides health care for their citizens. And our vice president elect says this is acceptable to kill our citizens over $20. If you're not serious about Medicare for all, then you need to admit it. You need to say, no, I find this acceptable. It is okay to sell your children's life for $20. And that's my position. If you're going to be a politician, stop lying to us. We need to force this vote. We need to see who's real and who's just using it for votes. Because it's disgusting that as an activist, I reach the vice president now of the United States and she finds my son's story acceptable and use it to undermine Medicare for all. I'm pissed. I'm very pissed. As just a nobody in the middle of Hicksville, New York, I've reached the vice president of the United States, and she says this is okay. I'm just getting through a huge depression, as I mentioned before the show, over you know the realization of the fact that I've reached the vice president, and it's fallen on deaf ears apparently. But I don't give up. I'm still here. I also fight for the New York Health Act, which is a single payer New York City-based healthcare system. I think you shared some of it for me, but. I'm still fighting. We can't give up. We have to fight because Danny's worth more than $20. Alan was worth more than $250. Shalin was worth more than $2,000. And this doesn't end every single day. Our insurance companies are denying healthcare and it's costing us lives and it's just for profit and we can't stop fighting.
0: That was Scott Desnoyers, a father living in New York State. And before him, Joy Marie Mann, podcaster and progressive activist, speaking at the Force the Vote Virtual Town Hall Wednesday, December 30th. The movement is pressuring House progressives to force the vote on Medicare for all. Find them at ForceTheVote.org. This is On the Ground Voices of Resistance from the Nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us.
2: This is about Barack Obama and Jeremiah Wright, and I have entitled this talk, A Fire No Water Can Put Out. Former President Barack Obama has a new book out, and it is guaranteed to be yet another bestseller. In that book, he ha- as he has done before, he devoted a page or two to retired preacher, Dr. Jeremiah A. Wright. Someone sent me the pages from that book where President Obama discusses Dr. Jeremiah Wright. Jeremiah Wright is my friend. Barack Obama is still riding a high wave of popularity, certainly among the circles of the established money political aristocracy. He is, we are told, the second most popular Democrat and the most famous Netflix makes documentaries about him and his wife Michelle. He is at the top of the most select speaking circles, raking in enormous fees. But more than that, Obama's political power and influence are far from diminished. This past US election cycle, he played it smart, coming out sparsely but making it count every single time. He came out to help rig the Democratic primary, cleverly helping to maneuver Bernie Sanders out of the game and to usher in the establishment anointed Joe Biden. Next, he sabotaged the strike action of the NBA, thereby needling achieving three goals simultaneously helping the white ownership save face, securing their profits, and undermining the efforts towards solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Third, He came out to campaign for Joe Biden in Michigan, where democratic chances were dicey, in Flint of all places, where he pulled that shameless stunt of pretending to drink the poisoned water just when publicity about that crisis was reaching boiling point. Then he assured the terrified parents of threatened children, most of them black, that their water was actually safe. Nothing has changed. The unspeakable damage to those children continues to this day. Governor Rick Snyder got away scot-free, just like Obama has allowed the Bush-era torturers to go untouched, their foul deeds unaccounted for, unrepented, and unpunished. Every time the goal was the same, to secure the status quo, to make sure nothing changes for the poor, struggling masses, crying out for justice, dignity, fundamental, systemic change, and hopeful life. And it all went the way he actually wanted it. That is how powerful this man still is. And for this, the establishment and the media glorified him. But President Obama might be basking in the warmth of a toxic sun, The younger, wide awake generation who are now politically far more aware than Obama was when he was their age are no longer taken in by the suave, cool politician. More and more, they are seeing him the way our own Steve Biko described Christianity in the hands of white missionaries and the black preacher pacifiers. Quote, the most effective instrument in the subjugation of our people to empire. In the critical eye of the younger generation, the Obama charm has worn off, and that might worry him no end. The judgment of Barack Obama will eventually be much harsher than my own in my book, Dare We Speak of Hope, searching for a language of life in politics and faith, or that of British political analyst and social critic Tariq Ali Whose book, The Obama Syndrome Surrender at Home and War Abroad, is still available. Princeton University's professor, Kianga Yamata Taylor, in her own fascinating From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, is already showing the way. Meanwhile, though, Jeremiah Wright has retired. He has had a stroke that has a debilitating effect on him. The brilliant mind has not been impaired but his speech is slower. He takes longer to formulate his sentences. He is in a wheelchair. The devil has attacked the right side of my mind, Jeremiah writes himself, says, with his irrepressible sense of humor, but God kept me in my right mind. He has had to severely cut down on his speaking and preaching engagements His days of crisscrossing the country as that much-admired, fiery, incredibly popular pastor, preacher, prophet, are seriously curtailed. Yet every time he speaks, the power pulsating through his words is palpable, penetrating, and persuasive. They listen to him, young and old, rapt and completely taken, for his power is more than just in the rhythmic movements as he used to turn words into music, his unquenchable sense of humor, his soaring voice as he proclaims the word. These are not all gone, but they are subdued. What has remained is that razor-sharp mind, the sterling analysis the chaotic discernment between right and wrong, the unshakable integrity, the unerring focus on what and who matters most, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized and excluded, the destitute and the dispossessed, the wronged, the despised, the targeted and the crucified. Through the internet and the Zoom era, his audiences have grown and have become even more diverse. Here. In South Africa, those who have heard him speak years ago now eagerly fill empty COVID lockdown Sunday mornings with his sermons searched out on the internet. And they remain stunned and inspired as they realize how relevant this man's preaching is. The promise to the prophet Ezekiel holds they... Ezekiel says, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, the arrogant and the cast aside, they shall know that there is a prophet of God among them. And at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference in the Jeremiah Wright School for Prophets, they are making sure that the traditions of the prophetic church, as embodied and personified by this extraordinary man, are nourished, and nurtured and transmitted from one generation to the other. Every time I hear and see him on Skype or in a Zoom discussion, the title of his own book of sermons comes back to me as I marvel at the resilience of this man. What keeps you so strong? Except those of us who know him also know the answer. And that brings me back to President Obama's book, and the question I have about this book It's not, not so much the why. Riding a wave of popularity just after an election in which you have made some powerful and successful interventions, securing one's legacy as one perceives it, impacting the direction of the ongoing public discussion where one's own chosen philosophy, new liberal capitalism, The politics of American exceptionalism and imperial elitism is under attack from without and severe train from within. These are all very good reasons. And the money, a cool $65 million in advance, is not to be sneezed at either. But my why is a different one. Why would this powerful, famous, rich, influential man need to not just spend time in his book on Jeremiah Wright, but attack him the way that he did. Why, knowing full well that since that scandalous 2008 betrayal of Jeremiah Wright, Jeremiah Wright himself has tried to defend himself against an incredible media tsunami, but he has hardly ever uttered a harsh word against President Obama himself. Meanwhile, the Obamas, first Barack, and then Michelle in her book, and now again Obama in this book, have not stopped their attacks. While they have gained everything from turning their backs on Jeremiah Wright, Dr. Wright himself has lost so much, even though his wealth clearly lies in other things. Barack Obama can write bestsellers without even mentioning Jeremiah's name. But he doesn't. That name continues to bother him. Why? I keep on wondering. So what is the former president saying? His comments come in layers. He begins with a typically Obama-esque cool, casual compliment to Wright's scholarly abilities, but then immediately withdraws it as he segues into something else. I quote, in the middle of a scholarly application of the book of Matthew or Luke, he might insert a scathing critique of America's drug war, American militarism, capitalist greed, or the intractability of American racism, rants that were usually grounded in fact but bereft of context, end quote. So Jeremiah Wright's critique of American politics and policies are inserted into the gospel message, not logically drawn from the gospel, as any preacher worth her salt must do. And it is a rant, therefore no longer a sermon, therefore not to be taken seriously at all as exegesis of scripture and a proper analysis and application to American politics. It is a rant, Alien to the gospel, as if Jesus was not himself dead serious in his own scathing critique of empire and the Jerusalem elites and their politics in, say, Matthew chapter 23. But the problem is that Jeremiah, right, in his critique on American empire, was as offensive as Jesus was to the empire of his day. And since Barack Obama cannot get at Jesus, he attacks Jeremiah Wright. These rants, Obama grudgingly admits, quote, were usually grounded in fact, end quote. So that means Jeremiah Wright was not making things up. But then immediately, Obama writes, but bereft of context and often they sounded dated. Really? Really? Critique of America's never ending wars, which Obama took from three to seven, dated. American white supremacy always present, never acknowledged, never repented for, never asked forgiveness for, having renewed itself a million new ways in education, healthcare, housing, opportunities, in racialized incarceration politics, in new lynchings of black bodies, crucified in the streets of America almost on a daily basis, with the Black Lives Matter movement beginning under his watch, and that is dated, the never-ending wars, the ongoing racism, the continuing war on the poor, the shattering socioeconomic economic inequalities, the devastations of American imperialist politics now all mercilessly exposed and exacerbated by the coronavirus worldwide. From the black crucified bodies on the streets of America to the bodies of the children droned to death in Yemen, it's all there still, Mr. Obama, the living, pulsating, death-dealing context. Often, Obama goes on to say, what he said was just wrong. So, what Jeremiah Wright said about American exceptionalism, about American lies that gave the world the war on terror and the illegal invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, of America's obliteration of Libya, its deplorable policies regarding Venezuela, its despicable alliance with Saudi Arabia and the onslaught against Yemen. And the resultant humanitarian crisis, all in search of regime change and profits, all of that was just wrong and out of context. And in this judgment, Obama does not offer a shred of evidence or counter-argument. And he clearly thinks he does not have to. But why not? The answer, says the prophet Micah in his book of the powerful, is... Because it is in their power. And they demand that one should not preach about these things. But arrogant power does not stop at flatly denying the truth. They have to go further. Smothering it with haughty mockery. Choking it with precedential ridicule. Leaving it no room to breathe. Jeremiah's sermon, speaking truth to power... Obama goes on to say, are not just wrong, quote, they are edging close to conspiracy theories one heard on late night stations or in the barber shop down the street, end quote. And then, in the equivalent of Amos being struck in the face and chased back to the south, the place away from the sophisticated spaces of the powerful and the privileged, where his rantings and ravings can be heard only by the unwashed masses, And where the rant, and where he writes, Obama writes with stinging sarcasm. It was as if this erudite, middle aged, light skinned black man was training for street cred, trying to keep it real. I will not give in to the temptation to say what I think of one who never was in the struggle, making snide remarks about the street creds of one who is an icon in the struggle. The chuckled condescension, the disrespectful mockery is not enough, however. And this time, it is not just the pastor. It is also his flock. I quote, or maybe, Obama writes, he just recognized both within himself and in his congregation the periodic need to let loose to release pent-up anger from a lifetime of struggle in the face of chronic racism, reason and logic be damned, unquote. So in one fell swoop, in a denigration pronounced from the throne of Pharaoh, all the blacks struggle for freedom, dignity, and life. All the suffering and pain, all the sacrifices and blood, all the glorious resilience because of a faith always under siege, always threatened but never conquered. All that is diminished, trivialized and delegitimized. And then just as we are beginning to think this is too much, Obama makes it worse. He throws Jeremiah, right, a crumb from the table, thinking it proves his generosity of heart. Still, he writes, the good in Jeremiah outweighs his flaws. At one level, one might be tempted to write all of this off as the petulant prattle of the idle powerful. But I think we should consider something else, and it brings me back to my question, why Would this powerful, popular ex-president, this undisputed darling of the establishment, need to include those pages in this book? I think it has something to do with this. In 2008, Jeremiah Wright was the senior minister at Trinity United, United Church of Christ and Barack Obama's pastor. Jeremiah Wright is a theologian, a musicologist, a political analyst, an activist for human rights, civil rights, including the rights of LGBTQI persons. But above all, and above all these, he is a preacher. In my view, he is the embodiment of prophetic clarity, prophetic truthfulness, and prophetic faithfulness. Like Martin Luther King Jr., he stands firmly in the tradition of the prophetic black church, It has been my great joy to get to know him as my colleague, friend and older brother. So when 2008 happened, we lived through it all with him, Rama and the family. We talked often about those tragic events and what politics and power can do to people. I shared with him that we were in South Africa experiencing the same phenomenon. There are people I have known For years, as comrades in the struggle, I have shared life and death moments with them. Yet, now that they are in power, I scarcely recognize them. Jeremiah told me how when Barack Obama came to him to ask his blessing for the political path he has chosen, he told him, remember, you are a politician. I am a preacher. As one who as a preacher, entered politics. And because I couldn't get away from being a preacher, left politics, I thought I understood what Wright was trying to say. It was a word of wisdom, which he hoped that Barack Obama would understand, because it makes all the difference in the world. Whereas the politician is bound by the policies, ethos, ambitions, the power, and the loyalties of politics, the preacher is bound to a higher loyalty, while the politician is bound to the desires of the party and its donors, and in America's case, to the desires and the ambitions and the workings of the American empire, the preacher is bound to the words of the prophet Micaiah, as the Lord lives Whatever the Lord says to me, that shall I speak. And when the preacher is pulled in other directions, is tempted to be silent because the rewards for that silence would be so great, she is haunted by the words of the prophet Jeremiah. If I say I will not mention God, Or speak any more in God's name. That within me is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in. That, Martin Luther King Jr. told us, is a fire no water can put out. That was 2008. In that same year, so we learn from a top secret documents published by WikiLeaks, the Pentagon was deeply worried about the growing anti-war sentiment in Western Europe. At least two governments, the Netherlands and Portugal, had lost elections because of their support for America's illegal wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. If the trend continued, America would have to go it alone eventually, carrying all the blame and all the costs politically, economically and morally. The Pentagon was petrified. The secret report reveals their thinking. Our only hope, this is a quote, our only hope for reversing the growing trend of anti-war sentiment is the election of Barack Obama. The Pentagon's reasoning makes perfect sense. That would put a much more cosmopolitan, secular, elegant and pleasant face on the war that up till now had been represented by this right-wing Christian Texan, and he was anathema to cosmopolitan, secular Western Europeans. Barack Obama, on the other hand, the sophisticated, Harvard-educated college professor of human rights law, and above all, an African-American, would reverse all of that. He would become the new face of the empire and its wars, and he would be able to make it seem benevolent and acceptable. And that is exactly what happened, concludes investigative journalist Glenn Greenwald. Obama got in, he continued those policies, continued the wars, thereby continuing and justifying the lies that got it all started in 2003. He became the perfect servant of the empire so while President Obama took up the mantle of George W. Bush, lying to and deceiving both the American public and the international community, Nobel Peace Prize in hand, Jeremiah A. Wright, putting on the mantle of Elijah, was speaking truth to power, his Bible in his hand. Right through his presidency, President Obama was deeply concerned to be seen, not to be seen as a black man, owning what M. Cesare has called the singularity of our blackness, reminding America that while he was indeed the president of all Americans, he did have the obligation to serve justice and restore dignity to those who were singled out for enslavement and oppression dispossession and disenfranchisement for 400 years. No, he would rather use his power to further the cause of the rich and powerful at home, as in Flint, Michigan, or with the protest at Standing Rock, and act as if the victims of American empire did not exist as in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Yemen, or indeed in Guantanamo. While Jeremiah Wright came to Africa, to teach his students about the beginnings of African slavery, reaffirm their ties to the motherland with love, dignity, and respect, probing the realities of imperialism and colonialism, and learning from the colonized, President Obama gave us AFRICOM and an unprecedented American military presence, good only for America and the minions of empire in our midst in Africa. And this while Jeremiah Wright went on to preach justice, even through years and tears of pain and undeserved suffering, throughout those years, even as Mr. Obama was riding high, the reviled Jeremiah Wright would be what Barack Obama decided that he would never be unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. The rewards of empire were too rich. And that, in my view, is why Barack Obama cannot leave Jeremiah Wright alone. That is why one of the most powerful men in America, still strutting the world stage, remains obsessed with a preacher in a wheelchair. I think Barack Obama is obsessed with Jeremiah Wright for one final reason. The Gospels tell us that after the murder of John the Baptist, Herod the Tetrarch was afraid of Jesus because he saw the same powers in Jesus, the Bible says, that he saw in John the Baptist. While earthly powers come and go, those same powers Herod saw in Jesus remain. And what Herod saw were the powers of the true prophet of God. And these are the powers He sees in Jeremiah, right? The perspicuity to discern, the power to confront, the boldness to expose, the courage to hold accountable, the resilience to suffer for what is right, the fearlessness to judge between right and wrong, the faithfulness to hold up the difference so that the people can see and judge and make choices. That is the power that terrifies empire. So this book will come and go. The American empire will crumble and fall. What remains is the fire of truth and power. And that is a fire no water can put out.
0: And the Reverend Alan Bosack will have the last word on this New Year's Day show this is on the ground, on the ground show.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital at on the Show.org. you can check out all of our current and past shows you can contact us and support us you can also let us know you like the show on that website or on Facebook Twitter or on patreon.com at on the show our new podcast is on the ground show with Esther everrum that's on the ground w esther everram And that's available for you to subscribe on all your podcast platforms. And if you check out the podcast, I appreciate your nice rating. Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included Home Universe by Chick Corea, Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice and happy new year. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show, where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal, on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.